And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast live on a foggy Tuesday morning in Los Angeles, California. We're about a quarter of the way, rapidly approaching the good old quarter pole of the NBA season. And it's time to go through some teams who internally and among their fan base might be feeling a little angst, a little nervousness, a little unease about their recent level of play. And I just want to say out front, no Celtics 7-7. Seven and seven. I did a Celtics episode with Scalabrini last week. No Pelicans, too depressing. No Hawks, covered that with Chinea Gwumake last week. No Wolves, because every time I talk about the Wolves, something terrible happens to the Timberwolves, and I don't want that to befall. Timberwolves fans, they're four and nine. It's not going great. Maybe Lakers. I'm sick of talking about the Lakers. Kind of sick of watching the Lakers without LeBron, to be honest. So we're going to go through a grab bag of angsty teams that I will list off in a minute. And to help us go through it, a guy who I know is watching every team, got multiple screens, probably looking at all the numbers. Kevin Pelton, how are you? Well, is a fan of a university that just fired their football coach in his second season. I know angsty teams, so I'm ready for this one. I assume that's you, Dub. Uh, I don't know. Yes. I don't know. I don't know anything more than that. But um, good, good for them, I guess. Um, I'm gonna re- read the, the the angsty teams. Are you ready? And I'm gonna let you pick which angsty team you want to talk about. The Indiana Pacers, six and nine, the most average and aggressively like not that interesting team in the NBA, beset by health issues every single night. Somebody's out. The Knicks. Rebounded last night with the win over those same Pacers, an old-school 90s win. Uh, eight and six, but had been slumping before that. Starters, bad bench, basically the dream team reincarnate. Uh, we'll talk about them. Utah, not expected to be here. Maybe they shouldn't be here, KP. I'll let you decide. They're eight and five. They've lost four out of five. Miami just spanked them at home without Jimmy Butler. They play the Sixers tonight. The Blazers, seven and eight. Weird team, really fun win over the Raptors at home last night in Portland. The Grizzlies, 7-7 seven and seven with one of the worst point differentials in the league, but I'll tell you what's a good cure for the point differentials. The Houston Rockets turnover machine. Just just come, just when the Rockets come to town. Poor Steven Silas. If I run into Steven Silas on the street, I'm dragging him into the nearest bar and I'm buying him like five drinks. Uh, and then the Kings, another team that got well last night against another terrible team, the Pistons, six and eight. Rumblings published in the Athletic yesterday that Luke Walton's job could be in jeopardy, which is you know not really uh, enormously surprising. Breaking news, Kevin. I will let you lead. Which of these angsty teams would you like to start off with? Well, appropriately for me being in the Pacific Northwest and then being my semi-home team, let's start with the Portland Trailblazers, even though the angst level is a little lower today than it was yesterday morning because of that thrilling win over the Raptors. The fundamentals on Portland, 7-8, 6th in offense, uh, moved up four spots just last night with that win over a tenacious defensive team in Toronto. 24th in defense, or maybe 21st. I can't even read my own writing, and I'm too lazy to look it up. Bad. Whatever it is, it's not good. Their point differential for the season is a minus one. So they are almost exactly what we would expect of a 500 team. KP, I can't figure out. I'll say this. They looked horrible in preseason. So horrible that the teams who played them in preseason, I would talk to people on those teams, and they'd be like, oh, my God. You, you got to keep an eye on the Blazers because this is, like, enormously disturbing. I'm not disturbed right now. I don't know whether I should feel encouraged. There are reasons, I think, to actually feel kind of encouraged about the Blazers considering their, their record and, and how badly Dame has shot for most of the season. What's your temperature take on these guys? Because I'm having trouble. Yeah, I think what's odd about them is – If you looked at a lot of what's happened ahead of the season, you'd be like, hey, that's great. You know, their defense is not is not good at this point as they adjust to this new, more aggressive scheme under Chauncey Billups. But it's a a whole heck of a lot better than last year when they were 29th. They've gotten really good play from their bench. Anthony Simons and Asir Little, two of their recent first-round picks, have both taken a huge step forward in their development. Little, in particular, looks like you know he could be the answer at one of the forward spots long-term big, for them. Big fan of what he's done the last two weeks, the way he's attacking closeouts. He's a good, you know what he has, KP? Underrated NBA skill. Good pass fake. 
He'll catch the ball with the defense rotating, fake the extra pass, and then drive. And it works a lot. They closed that game last night, I'm sure he'll talk about, with Little at the four and Nance at the five, which is a very interesting look. So keep going. Yeah, I mean, so the reason they're not playing well then is primarily because Damian Lillard has shot the ball so poorly. He's started to come out of it the last few games here, and I think that's encouraging, although clearly the abdominal is enough of an issue that they sat him down in that Denver game that they got blown out, and and Chauncey Billups really lit into the team about their effort level afterwards. So, you know, because of the fact that I think people just expect, okay, Dame's going to turn it around, the angst level is mostly centered around the starting front court of Robert Covington and, and Yusuf Nurkic where Billups kind of intimated after that Denver game there were going to be some changes. They weren't, and Covington played better you know, against Toronto. But as you noted, neither of those guys were on the court to finish that one. Nurk is, Nurk is one of those, boy, does it depend on the night when you catch him. There are nights this season where he's looked like so slow and not super engaged. And there are nights this season when when they blitz Dame and he and he catches on the short roll and looks to score and doesn't hesitate and doesn't overthink, he's like, damn, and he's shooting 60% on twos. Defensively, some nights he looks good, sometimes some nights he looks slow. To your point about the Roko Nurk thing, you know, there was a lot made when they got Nance, which I think was a, a, a good trade. That well, if they played Covington, Nance, and Nurkic together, that could really shore up their defense. I don't think those three have played one second together this season. And I said before the, before the season, I think it's just too slow. I think that lineup is just sort of like too slow and too creaky. Um, so, so here's a weird stat for them. They're plus 10 per 100 possessions when Dame plays without CJ and plus 5 when CJ plays without Dame. They're losing the Dame plus CJ minutes. Even though their starting five is just okay. It's plus four per 100 possessions. Remember, that lineup last year just blew the doors off the entire league. I think to reach their ceiling as a team, they need that lineup to be blow the doors off the entire league good, and it hasn't been. And then you look at like the on-off numbers. I think there's reason to be kind of encouraged despite their record. Like I just read that when one guard's on the floor and the other sits, that's been a weak spot for them in the past. That's been solid. They're getting killed when Zeller plays. And they just don't have to play Zeller if they don't want. And they've leaned more in that direction. I just think when you look at the fundamentals of this team, offensively, they're getting a ton of threes, a ton of shots at the rim. Defensively, we should talk about probably how many you know shots at the rim and threes they're giving up. This scheme is not working to, to limit good opponent shots. But I, I look at this team, you know, look, everyone wants to hate on the Blazers. They, they're they hemorrhaging, damned, wasting Dame's prime, and there's the Neil Olshay workplace investigation, which I know really not that much more about than has been publicly reported. There was the Dame trade noise in the summer, and there's like, oh my God, they haven't found the great number two for Dame. CJ just is what he is. I, I still think this is a good team, and when I look under the hood and look at their numbers, I'm like, I, I, I kind of still think they're they're pretty – are they going to win the West? Are they going to make the conference finals? Probably not, but I think they're a good team. Yeah, and I think that question of expectations has hung over them since the 2019 conference finals run. And I the, – the, the have they wasted Dame's prime question is an interesting one because I think there's a sense that, okay, you've got an all-NBA first-team guard. You should be consistently winning playoff series, getting deep into the playoffs. But I, I just don't know if that's the reality of it. I mean, one thing – I looked at a few years ago, wrote about this in a piece uh, about Anthony Davis during his first year with the Lakers is, so if you take a look at, you know, the, the value of a given player and what that implies about the team's record, kind of what's the relationship when you graph those two things, a player like who produces in my wins above replacement player metric, like Dame has over the past five or six years here. That typically translates to about a 48 to 50 win team on average, which is mostly what the Blazers have been during this era, with the two exceptions of 2016-17, when they really mismanaged that offseason. I think if you're you know, going to be critical of the way that Neil Walshie has put players around Damian Lillard in his prime, that's the summer you look at. That's, and- that's the cap spike bonanza. Evan Turner, Myers Leonard, Alan Crabb, I think, are all that summer, right? Matching the Alan Crabb offer sheet. I don't even know. I don't even know where Alan Crabb is right now, and th- that's that summer. So you're getting at the point I want to talk about. So keep going. Yeah, and then 2019-20, which is when they had the injury to Yusuf Nurkic, where he didn't play at all until the seeding games. 
Zach Collins got injured, was set to be their starting power forward, uh, got injured the third game of the season, didn't come back until the seeding games either, and they're signing Carmelo Anthony midseason to start at power forward for them, which is a very unusual situation. Uh, in that that year, yeah, that, that was a legitimately wasted great Damian Lillard season, but I think it was almost in, largely because of the injuries. You know who enjoyed uh, seeing Carmelo Anthony last night at Staples Center was DeMar DeRozan. Uh, every, every every possession was, hey, where's Carmelo's screen? Mid-range jumper in your face, screen, mid-range jumper in your face. We're not talking about the Bulls' sake because there ain't no angst in Chicago. In fact, I saw some Bulls people after the game last night. Uh, and there is, They are very much in, I'm trying to temper my optimism <laughs> mode because it's a long season but they really like what they're seeing. And I'll tell you this, I don't want to do too much on the Bulls. Of all the teams I've seen in person this season, they are the one that stood out as they look even more impressive in person than they do on a screen. Like you feel the frenetic activity of Ball and Caruso on defense. It's just, it's in, when you see it up close and we sit courtside at Staples, it, you just feel how in the guys they are. You feel how fast they're playing, how fast the decision-making is. You, you watch them. And like, there was not one second last night in that game, not one second, that you thought the Lakers were as good as the Bulls. Just there, And the Lakers have Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook. There was not one second where you thought these are evenly matched teams. Anyway, I don't even know what the hell we're talking about. Blazers. Oh, so, so that's what I was going to ask you. So Neil Olshay has engendered such ill will among the fan base um, for many, many reasons, culminating, I think, in the disastrous Chauncey Billups press conference, um, and and I and it and it's given and and the Dame trade angst has given rise to this while they're wasting his prime. So I, I actually challenged you and I challenge other people because I think it's just a matter of fairness. What are the alternatives when you, when everyone yells and screams about whether they they didn't get a second star? This okay. What what did Neil do wrong? What is the opportunity he had that he pissed away because of decision X, Y, and Z. So you, you look back at that summer of 2016, absolutely, that's 100%. It blew up in their face. Now, they got out of it at minimal cost, I think. A lot of those toxic deals, they somehow offloaded at minimal cost. You look at that. The Covington trade, two firsts for Covington, I liked at the time. It has not had the payoff that I imagined it, it would have. Um, and, and, and somewhere in there, I guess if you pile up well, bad contracts, traded picks, and again, I liked the Covington trade at the time. I can't, I can't sit here and hit on. He's been okay for them. He just hasn't moved the needle like I thought. I somewhere in there is a is a general opportunity cost, a missed opportunity to acquire an extra pick, which might have helped you make a trade. I somewhere in there, there's a missed opportunity cost for sure. But I have not really seen anyone articulate a better roadmap than this. That is. I mean, it's it's you can sit down and do it. It's not hard. I mean, you could find trades, theoretical trades, but it's it's harder than people think. Is all I'm saying. But there's there's generally there's definitely generally a broad opportunity cost over the last five years. But that just leaves you in a place of I don't know what roadmap B, C, and D were. They exist, but I just don't know what they were. Yeah, I mean that summer of 2016. It was really. It seemed like they were perfectly positioned because you know this was the summer after LaMarcus Aldridge has gone to San Antonio it seems like they're about to rebuild instead that season I think one of the best off seasons of Olshay's tenure uh, El Farouk Aminu to a contract that aged really well that descended Ed Davis same thing not quite as you know valuable players Aminu but a nice bench player for them over the course of that contract so they're 44 and 38 in 2015-16 they win a playoff series because Chris Paul and Blake Griffin both get injured in game four of that series and they win the next three after being down 2-1. So they've got this young starting five, all of them 26 or younger, and max cap space. And you're thinking, hey, we're perfectly set. But that turned out to be the worst summer to have max cap space. I mean, the, the options that they considered were Chandler Parsons, who they decided not to sign because of the condition of his knees. And that obviously was a good decision. Uh, they did sign Evan Turner. The guy I wanted them to sign was Kent Bazemore, who they ended up getting for Evan Turner, oddly, three years later as they got out of that Turner contract. And Bazemore's contract was a disaster, too. And I believe they looked at Whiteside in that summer as yep. well. Yep, Whiteside, who came back to Miami on a max. They got him in the last year of his contract. I mean, the, the 2016 offseason, unless you were the Warriors and could sign Kevin Durant, the only winning move, it turned out, was not to play. I... I 
and I'm not trying to let the Blazers off the hook. Like, those opportunity costs are real. You just don't quite know what they are. Like, I, I look at – there's no – there's no – it's not just the sort of bad deals. There's no home run in there. Like I look at, I look at Seth Curry. To the Blazers' credit, they were early on Seth Curry. They were one of the first teams to realize Seth Curry was good. They signed him to, I think, a cheap two-year deal. Great move, right? Didn't play that much for them. Didn't didn't really hit the way they expected. The Philly deal for Seth Curry. That's the kind of trade that's missing from the last six years of Portland Trail Blazers basketball. The one that you look at that's just sort of like, wow, that really changed our life as a team. That that asset value really changed our life as a team. So. I don't know, but I, I still think I had them somewhere between like fifth and ninth in the West. I still think that they are that kind of team. Is there any reason? I mean, the defense is, I, I don't love the splitting scheme, but like you said, I, whatever they did last year wasn't working. Is what, what? Where do you have them sort of finishing in the West, I guess? The one angst thing that caught me was reading Chauncey Billups' comments after that Denver game. He was talking about Covington. And his quote was, every team has that guy referring to defense. Mikhail Bridges picking up Dame full court. Nico Batum. Every team, there's a guy where it's like, oh, man, got to get him off him, you know? And that's how I envision Rocco. And we're not just there yet. Which, like, that's what people thought of Robert Covington for a long period of time because he was so valuable defensively. Is his, it must be because of his individual defense. And I think anyone who had paid close attention realized that, no, it's really because of his ability to get in the gaps, to create deflections, steals, block shots from the wing, uh, or, is a, or even as an undersized five when he was playing in Houston. That's what made him so good defensively, not that one-on-one defense. So that, that comment made me a little angsty that you know, Billups may not be using him the correct way. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I still think the, the good news is the, the West just looks extraordinarily shallow this year. So any of these teams, you know, Dallas has had a weird start, as you've talked about. The Blazers, Memphis, who we'll talk about later. Any of these teams catches fire, they can get up into that top six easily. And Dame's going to get hot. It's just a matter of time. Like you said, it started. And, and, and obviously, we, we, you can pick at the Zach Collins pick, the Myers-Leonard pick. Those are missed opportunities. Myers-Leonard out of the league. Zach Collins is injured all the time. I actually think Zach, the, the healthy version of Zach Collins would, was and is going to be a good, helpful player if he gets healthy. In that Denver series, he was huge for them um, the year they made the conference finals and won game seven in Denver. But those picks just haven't worked out. That's opportunity cost. It just adds up. It just adds up over time. Okay, pick uh, – by the way, imagine being Larry Nance Jr. for a second. Got out of Cleveland. <laughs> we loved Cleveland. Got out of Cleveland. Got to a winning team. Like, I'm going to be the missing piece for Damian Lillard. You wake up, you're like, the Cavs are good? What, what, what am I missing? The Cavs are good and my team's under 500? Okay, pick another, pick another angst team, KP, and- from the angst grab bag. And Portland being the worst of the three teams in those tra- that trade, because I guess you know there's a world where he could have gone to Chicago and been part of that. Uh, let's talk about Sacramento, even though I don't feel like the angst actually should be nearly as strong there as it is. Well, the angst is always strong when your owner expects playoff appearances in a loaded Western Conference that is always really, really good. The Kings are 6-8, and eight, spanked Detroit, who just could not make a freaking shot in Detroit last night. They are. Are you ready for this, KP? This stat surprised me. They're fifth in offense. Now, that sounds really amazing. It's actually kind of close to 10th, but let's just give the the Kings are really good at offense. They're fifth in offense, 21st in defense, which compared to last year when they were basically the worst defensive team that anyone had ever seen ever in the history of the world, that's really, really good. Um, and, you know, they're now starting... Chimeze Metu at the four over Mo Harkless. That's interesting. They've got all these guards, all of whom are playing for them, all of whom are contributing. Harrison Barnes has had a nice season, although they actually have been strangely really good with, with Harrison Barnes off the floor. I'm with you. I don't get the Luke Walton. I don't think Luke Walton's like an amazing coach, but I look at this team, like I said, fifth in offense, 20th in defense, six and eight. I just don't like. I don't. They're playing about to expectations for me. What have you seen that is has impressed you? I think the biggest question going forward is how real is that offense? Is this really a top seven, eight offense? Because if it is, you look up and down the numbers, crunch the lineup data however you want, crunch the on-off data however you want. They look like a five hundred team. Right. And in terms of plus, you know, point differential, they're outscoring opponents by almost a point per game, which is sixth in the West. 
I mean, it, that maybe sounds a little more impressive than it is because there's five teams at 4.7 or better and then this enormous gulf down to Sacramento. But there's also only seven teams in the entire West, San Antonio weirdly being the seventh of those that are outscoring opponents thus far. So if you're in that group, I think you probably should actually feel pretty good about your chances right now. And it seems like in their case, so much of the angst is tied to the fact that De'Aaron Fox has started slowly to this season. And in that athletic piece, uh, Sam Amick mentioned, our buddy Sam Amick mentions that there's concern about his fit with Tyrese Halliburton, which I'm, sh- I'm sure is coming from within the Kings organization. And this seems to be one of those things where, well, Fox played well last season. He's not playing as well this season. What changed? Well, last season, Tyrese Halliburton came off the bench. This year, Tyrese Halliburton is starting. Therefore, that must be the issue. And then you dig like the slightest bit below that surface and it starts to fall apart. Because number one, it's not like Tyrese Halliburton only played when De'Aaron Fox was on the bench last season. 47% of, the percent of, their, of Fox's minutes last year came with Halliburton. This year, it's 55% because Halliburton has missed a couple games due to injury. It's not really that dramatic. They're plus two per 100 possessions with Fox and Halliburton on the floor so far. Yeah, and last year... Fox actually shot better, had a higher usage rate with Halliburton on the court. He was better in all regards with Halliburton. This year, if you look at the difference, it basically comes down to Fox is shooting 24% on attempts outside the paint when he plays with Halliburton and 39% without him, which is closer to his career mark. It's it's just a small sample randomness that's going to wash out, I'm pretty confident. But, but here's the concern. Here's De'Aaron Fox's three-point shooting year by year over five seasons. Rookie year, 30.7%. Second year, when it looked like ascending superstar, the Kings had that sort of hot finish under Dave Yeager. Of course, they then fired Dave Yeager because all the Kings do is when they get a good coach, fire them. Um, uh, 37%. Year three, 29%. Last season, 32%. So far this season, 23%. Add it all up, it's 31.9%. And you can see him hesitating on threes now that I think he would have taken even at the beginning of this season and look De'Aaron Fox is young still he's 23 years old he has plenty of time to develop into an average or above average three-point shooter the track record right now is bad three-point shooter for a guy who has the ball a lot of the time and if there's a reason why they're a shaky fit together it's because when Halliburton has the ball they aren't covering Fox that they're kind of ignoring Fox to muck up the paint I don't see any reason other than maybe defense, honestly, why that guard pairing wouldn't work. I mean, Halliburton's okay defensively. I think he's probably been a little overrated defensively. But he's a smart, crafty player, long arms and all that. I don't – offensively, if Fox just can just make an average number of open catch-and-shoot threes, I don't I don't see any reason why that's – I mean, what, what they, there's too much smart playmaking between the two of them? I, I don't – I like having two guards out there who can run the offense, especially when one of them is a legit two-guard-sized player. Yeah, and if anything, if that pairing should hurt either of them, it maybe is Halliburton, who, is, who proved so much more effective in the pick and roll last season as a rookie than any of us who had watched him at Iowa State, where he was more of kind of this Lonzo Ball style point guard, get it, get the ball out early, spot up, do those sorts of things, which is what made the fit with Fox seem so appealing. But then he came in the NBA, and all of a sudden, him and Rashawn Holmes had this amazing pick and roll chemistry. Oh, it's so. it's the best. It's the best. It's like the secret handshake of diehard NBA fans <laughs> is if you think if you know about Rashawn Holmes push shot and you know that Tyrese Halliburton and Rashawn Holmes have a great pick and roll chemistry on lobs and stuff. It's like you're in the club. It's the secret knock on the door to get in the club. I'll say I don't know if the mics on the basket in Sacramento are louder than in other arenas. Tyrese Halliburton takes such incredible joy in setting up Rashawn Holmes for alley-oops. He had, there was a game, out. was like two games ago, where he, like three out of four possessions, dunk, dunk, dunk. And every, and they were like dunks right on Rashawn Holmes' defender's head. Like right on his And Tyrese, you could see Tyrese Halliburton going back, like going under the rim, U-turning to go back on defense. You could hear him say, oh my God! Oh my <laughs> God! And just like smiling and laughing at how happy he was that Rashawn Holmes just dunked on somebody's face. Now, you mentioned Metu starting. Uh, Harkless, by the way, also part of that 2016 Portland offseason, although that contract aged pretty well for them, and he was a starter until he got traded. Uh, 
I, I had forgotten, maybe I'm going to lose the NBA nerddom credit that I got for referencing the Halliburton uh, Holmes pick and roll. I had forgotten that all of a sudden he started shooting threes when he got to Sacramento last season. And then he comes out the other, you know, last week when he kind of got into the rotation and they're like running plays for him to catch, catch and shoot threes. And it's like, wait, what is happening here? Because this is a guy who played exclusively on the interior back in college. Uh. Chimeze Metu so far this season has taken 24 threes. He's 9 of 24. Before this season, he had taken 41 threes. You know who else is on pace to, who I think has already passed his career high in three-point attempts and is shooting 40-something percent? Wendell Carter Jr. Just random Wendell Carter Jr. shout-out. Like, we've been waiting all these years for Wendell Carter Jr. pick-and-pop guy to, like, actually appear. And he told me before last season, oh, it's going to happen. Wendell's going to shoot. He talked about himself in the third person, I think, if I remember the interview correctly. Well, now he's shooting. Anyway, shout out Wendell. Yeah, Chimeze Meru starting four. It's cute right now. Seems like kind of a structural problem <laughs> when you don't have enough wings to put Harrison Barnes at the four as much as you probably should. Harrison Barnes having a great season. Um, that lineup with Fox, Heald, Halliburton, Barnes, Holmes is still good. It's, it's, it's actually uh, like only plus six, but in limited minutes, but it's a dynamite offensive lineup. Holmes is really good. I just, the wing depth is what it is. The guard defense beyond Davion Mitchell, who is just incredible is, is not good. And I, I before the season, they look like a team that should be in the play in race. And I, I don't, I don't see why anyone inside the Kings would have expected much more than that. And they are on pace to indeed be that kind of team. I feel no angst about the Sacramento Kings. Yeah, my angst is pretty low. I mean, they they just could use more good players. Terrence Davis playing well would be very helpful, and it's a problem that they have like six centers on the roster, and the only one that they're effective with on the court is Rashawn Holmes. But yeah, they're again, a disaster, and the Alex Len, Tristan Thompson minutes are just a, are a disaster. And uh, Again, all of this is pretty much what we expected going into the season. No reason to change our position much. Also, since he came up, we should say get well soon to Dave Yeager after he left the uh, Sixers. Yes, uh, that news, I did not know about that. Uh, Woj reported and Dave did a podcast with, with Woj that he's receiving cancer treatment for a rare form of head and neck cancer. Um, I've, I've talked with him a little over text the last couple of days, and obviously we all, we all wish... Um, Dave well, and he did a great job with the Kings. I mean, he's, he, he had them rolling. Okay, pick and, and, and just to wrap, is the offense real is interesting? Because you look at their shot selection, they're not getting, like, great shots. They're not getting a ton of free throws. They're not protecting the ball in terms of limiting turnovers at, like, any unusual rate. They're not doing anything, like, great. They're just sort of pretty, and they're not converting shots at a ridiculous rate. That Oh, they're getting lucky. They're making a ton of threes. It's just sort of like they're okay at everything, and it's added up to a pretty good offense. I'm not, I'm not really sure how, but it's, it's working. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay, full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Pick another angst team. Let's go Memphis. Memphis. Oh, boy. Memphis, <laughs> anointed golden team of the NBA. Love John Morant. Got off to a good start. Then the wheels fell off. Double-digit losses to the Suns, Wizards, Pelicans. That one hurts. Pelicans. And the Charlotte Hornets, they now sit at 7-7 seven and seven after a blowout win over the uh, over the Rockets last night. 
They are 15th in offense. That one win, to show you how still early we are, they went from 20th to 15th in offense in one night. They only went from 30th to 29th on defense in that one night. Another weird team, KP, because you look at this. This stat is just crazy. With John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. on the floor, they're plus 10 per 100 possessions with a defensive rating that would rank like top five in the NBA. And yet they have a pretty big negative point differential and they're 29th in defense. What in the hell is going wrong for these guys? So I think a lot of times early in the season when this happens, people ask, well, is it a function of problems with your defense or is it bad luck? And in the Grizzlies case, the answer is conveniently both. And it seems like different answers with different lineup groups. The starters seem to be more or less allowing the kind of shots you'd want and that they allowed the last two seasons when they had this surprisingly strong team defense for a young team uh, under Taylor Jenkins and his first two coaches, two seasons as a coach in the NBA. And then they're just getting blitzed in terms of opponent three-point shooting. Uh, 29th in the league in opponent three-point shooting. Uh, Their opponents are doing like 42% or something crazy for the season against Memphis. But then if you look at the reserve groups, they're allowing way too many shots at the rim, particularly when they had Xavier Tillman Sr. at center. He's now been out of the rotation. They've gone smaller with Brandon Clark as their backup center. Uh, Overall, opponents, the second most shot attempts per 100 possessions at the rim, according to second spectrum tracking, after 21st last season. So that's a, a pretty alarming trend. Yep. Uh, For the season, I think they're giving up about an average number of threes and a slightly worse than average number of shots at the rim. But they're just everything is going in, to your point. And there's uh, I think there's some bad luck involved. Like this team is not this bad defensively. I mean, that's the next big hurdle for Morant, who hurdle number one, three point shooting. He's at 38 percent on four, four or five attempts a game like that appears to be pretty real. His stroke looks he looks confident shooting it defensively. He's just. He's Dame 2.0 as like young point guard who's just standing up straight, getting smacked on screens, and he's got the ability to be good, and I think he'll be good. He just needs to he just needs to be good. Um, but the on-off numbers for this team are are just wild. Like like the common denominator in their best lineups is Jaron Jackson Jr., who has not had a really great season by any by any measure statistically. Scoring is not that high. Shooting's not that great. Defensively, I think he's made real strides. And you mentioned Clark. I never really got why Clark just fell out of the rotation there. The Jackson-Clark front court is plus a whole bunch of points in 58 minutes together and has turned some games for them. The Jackson-Adams front court has been okay, but that Jackson-Clark front court has been great. And and that Ja-Jaron Jackson plus-minus is, is really encouraging. I think this is – the numbers on this team are just all over the place, but um, – I'm not I'm not really worried, honestly, especially given how young they are. Well, that I think is the big question is like, how seriously are you going to push to win this season? Obviously, their focus of the offseason was let's take advantage of this excess depth that we have and try to accumulate more picks for the future. I I mean, I they have Desmond Maiden has played very well. D'Anthony Melton is a, a very good player, but boy, could they use the Grayson Allen who is making every shot he's throwing up for the Milwaukee Bucks right now. And instead, like they're continuing to play Zaire Williams 18 minutes a night, even now that Dylan Brooks is back in the lineup. And you got to kind of wonder at some point, does the focus shift from developing him, which conveniently I did have a piece over the weekend in my mailbag looking at it's actually not as true as people think it is that you need to play a lot of minutes as a young player to develop that actually it seems to be better sometimes or at least not not any worse for players to have to earn those minutes and fight for those minutes on better teams. So, you know, continuing to give him 18 minutes a night when he's shooting 42% in twos and 29% on threes, and the the defense still seems to be more potential than it is reality at this stretch. That seems like the simplest move, just kind of cutting down to a nine-man rotation to improve this team in the short term. I'm really interested in watching Zaire Williams because, you know, that was the guy they took with the 10th pick and they got, they moved up seven spots in the draft in that Valanchunas Adams Bledsoe exchange um, with new Orleans. And could they have gotten him at 17? I don't know, but they clearly targeted him. They just extended Jaron Jackson. Jaws obviously going to get a super max or a max, whatever the most he can get, he's going to get. 
between the Williams pick and the Winslow flyer, they're clearly searching for the third guy. And they want the third guy to be a long-rangey wing who can do lots of different things on defense and hopefully, in Williams' case, hit threes, which has eluded Justice Winslow for most of his career. Um, I just They clearly are looking hard at who can be the third guy in three or four years with our guys. So I've, I've watched him. As you said, it's been – it's been he's he's very young and he's about what you would expect for a rookie. But I don't you know the defense I think will be closer to twentieth when it's all said and done, which is which is fine. Offensively they're just average, and I I think that's about what they are. Um, but they're tough. Nobody likes playing these guys. And Dylan Brooks just got back. That should help their defense too. I don't know where did you have these guys projected before the season? Like I, everyone had them. They, they were like the solid ninth right. in the West. They're like that was the most common place for them. Yeah, which is, I think, where I had them as well. So I, I think, actually, the rest of the West is soft enough that they could move up from that, especially, you know, because John Morant clearly has taken this big step forward. So I I like them to, you know, at, at the very least, uh, to have the chance to host a couple of, or to at least host a, a play-in game, I guess. You got to be, no, eighth, you host potentially the second one. You get, yeah, two my chances love to for, get into the play My love for John Morant is well known. I just, I he's just... In one of the most telegenic, charismatic young players that has come into the league in a, in a long time. I would want to be his teammate very badly. Okay, uh, you can pick another team from the morass grab bag. I'm throwing my grizzly sheet of paper on the floor. Pick somebody else. All right, I, again, I don't think the angst is actually, should actually be that high here, but it is pretty high at the moment because of the starters, as you mentioned. So let's talk about the New York Knicks. Oh, the Knicks. The Knicks uh, beat the Pacers last night. They are now... Eighth in offense and 17th in defense. They moved up eight spots in the defensive rankings in one night. Um, the issues at, at, in New York have been the starters are a disaster, and the bench, the bench mob, the bench mob is plus 25 per 100 possessions. It is the best lineup in the NBA. Full stop. Minimum 50 minutes played so far this season. Todd Gibson has found the fountain of youth. Uh, those three guards, Rose, Quickly, Burks, just kill it every game. Uh, the starters are minus like 15 or 16 per hundred possessions. It's really bad. And defensively, they're giving up a ton of threes. And this year they're going in. So tell me what you're – but they're 8-6. and six. And it, I guess this is, part of the angst is like the result of expectations. Like people got very excited about the Knicks. I, I said right from when they – even before Kemba Walker, once they did Fournier, Burks, Rose, etc., I said I think they're going to be able to sustain about what they did last year. They should not at least they've they've at least given them a cushion where maybe they got a little lucky with three point defense last year, maybe not. They shouldn't fall back, and so I think eight and six with a a positive score differential is like it's about where they should be. I'm not angsty at all. Yeah, and these are just sort of the ups and downs that you go through in a season as in about 500 team. Now, I, I think probably if there is a legitimate reason for concern to jump to the conclusion at the beginning of this, it's because the East looks so much more difficult than we thought it was going to be. And Chicago in particular seems to have jumped the Knicks in the pecking order. Maybe Washington, too. I'm a, I'm a little more skeptical of the Wizards start because they're their opponent three-point shooting thus far. But, you know, they, there's I had them as a, in this same mix is, you know, maybe Can I a little ask you a general mix. East question that has nothing to do with this? Yeah. At what point? At what point should I start caring about Milwaukee's record? I think once Chris Middleton comes back. I mean, I, it's now the you know, the fact that Brooke Lopez still isn't back is a bit concerning to me. But I mean, the question for them is almost entirely health, right? It's it's not really performance when you look at you know how many of these losses they've had three starters out for at least. No, no, th- that's what I'm saying though. Like, I, I don't even. Like, I after the game last night, I was having a drink with a bunch of NBA folks from from the people who are here, and I said, I th- I think right now, if you ask me, like, what's the safest pick to win the championship, given Kyrie Irving's continued absence and the Lakers flailing around, and I said, I, I think the safest pick is probably Milwaukee. And the guys at the table started laughing and said, "Zach, they're eleventh in the East." I was like, "Yeah, I don't. I, I guess I just don't care. Like, I, I assume they're going to be amazing when they're healthy. If assume, assuming they get healthy, I will say, you know, this is a lesson in how unpredictable this sport can be. Even in the even if in the macro level, it's somewhat predictable in who wins the championship or who's in the finals. Like, we all put in Sharpie. 
one Brooklyn, two Milwaukee, or one Milwaukee, two Brooklyn. They're going to be the top two seeds. That's it. If you want to get to the conference finals, you want to get to the finals, right? you got to go through both of them. There's a world now where they play each other in the second round of the playoffs. Like, that 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 world has been blowing up. And ask the Hawks. Like, if you, if you avoid the juggernauts, if the playoff brackets break right for you, suddenly you're, like, two wins away from the finals. Like, I think that's a – I don't know. It's a big deal. Talk about the Knicks now. Suddenly you create angst for future seasons. I mean, 538, by the way, still has Milwaukee and Brooklyn one and two in the East, just with a lot less wiggle room than they well, had. Well, Brooklyn's before. doing its job. Brooklyn's doing, Brooklyn has won a, 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 like nine of 10 or something, and Kevin Durant is just a flat out joke. I mean, there's just absolutely nothing anybody can do with Kevin Durant. It's ridiculous. But okay, talk about the Knicks. Bing bong. <laughs> so you mentioned more threes going in, which is something that we expected because. You know, as much as Knicks fans didn't want to hear it last season, teams generally don't have that much control over how well or how poorly their opponents shoot threes, which is just one of these things that's kind of accepted as fact in the analytics community that hasn't penetrated out whatsoever, it seems like. But, you know, especially over small samples like the first, you know, month and change of the season. And those threes, those are all going in when the starters are on the court. When this, the, their primary starting five with Mitchell Robinson at center is out there, opponents are shooting 42.5% on threes. Against all of their lineups, it's 33% on threes, which is a little more normal than it was last season, but still dramatically, dramatically better. So I, I think that, that that gap between the starters and the bench, even though it'll probably still exist because, you know, Derek Rose and Alec Burks are two really, really good players to bring off the bench. I think it's going to close up pretty dramatically. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, now I feel angst, Kevin, because there's breaking news and my whole day is ruined because Evan Mobley is out two to four weeks with a right elbow sprain, according to the Cleveland Cavaliers, who are already missing Colin Sexton, Kevin Love, and Lowry Markkinen, and are somehow 9-5 and five or 9-6 and six or whatever they are after a split with Boston. I don't want to live in a world where Evan Mobley isn't playing basketball. I mean, that's a hu- they're running out of guys at this point, and, and I'm not even bothering to look at their schedule. I didn't want to talk about the Cavs. They feel the opposite of angst, but now I feel angst. Evan Mobley... <laughs> Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes are just unbelievable. But Mobley, he was 0 of 11 last night, so um, he came back to earth a little bit. But I, you have any early thoughts on, the? you know, the, can the Cavs continue to count on Jetty Osmond hitting step-back threes and carrying through this stretch and all that? I mean, I don't know. It's just too depressing. Yeah, let's hope that the elbow was a factor in that 0 of 11 shooting. I mean, yeah, it's it's odd to be talking about a rookie being injured, and it's a concern for whether a team can continue winning. The Raptors... I think they, they did okay when Scotty Barnes was out of the lineup. but uh, he, And Love and Markkinen, you would think, based on the timeline for when they first went in the health and safety protocols, should be back pretty They're, quickly. They should be back soon. Kevin Love's been on the bench cheering and looking looking healthy recently. So, But those guys are not Evan Mobley defensively. And, uh, you know, the, so not having that, that Mobley-Jared Allen combination that I think a lot of us were skeptical of the fit going into the season, but has looked so awesome thus far, will be an issue for them this next few weeks. Denzel Valentine and Dean Wade coming in to save the day in Cleveland. Dean Wade is the most anonymous NBA player. I, I don't know why. I just if Dean if Dean Wade is the least recognizable, most anonymous NBA player. I guess his height would probably give him away. But but if, I don't. But think, if you saw him in I, the context of you know he's wearing Cleveland Cavaliers gears, your first thought is going to be he's Kevin Love, right? Or like who's the new strength and conditioning coach uh, of the Cavs? Like he's, he looks pretty. He's pretty big. He's in good shape. He's probably good strength. Anyway, um, the Knicks. So you got into the threes. I'll tell you what's most worrisome to me about the Knicks, KP. It's not their defense, which is 17th, and I think they'll they'll get better. Although they're rebounding, they're they're 20th in defensive rebounding, which is very untibsy. And it's just you look at their their guards are all bad rebounders. Their wings are are not great rebounders. Um, that's something to monitor. I think the offensive performance of the starters is more concerning to me. Um, their 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 offensive numbers are are kind of below average, especially given that was the whole point of Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier was to juice up this offense that just didn't have any ball handling reliability around Julius Randle until they would bring Derrick Rose in off the bench. And I, it's just not 
it there are games when it's clicking. Like Kemba went off for like 20 in the first quarter against Charlotte. Pull-up threes galore. They're making a ton of pull-up threes. Fournier has slowed down. But Randall is still playing a lot. And look, I have lived atop Julius Randall Hill for five years now when there was nobody there with me but Nate Jones and, and me on Julius Randall Hill foraging for berries to stay alive. I, I love Julius Randall. He's still playing a lot of these minutes as if he does not have any surrounding talent on offense. Like his posts and isolations are down, but only by a tiny bit in terms of volume. They're down in efficiency by a whole lot. And I just feel like I, I kind of – I know he can't roll to the rim as easily because Mitchell Robinson's there, although they would seem to have like a nice high-low potential when teams blitz Fournier and Kemba. I, I, but I know the spacing isn't great for that. I just felt like I would see a little more variety I, and him lean into more of a role as even a ball handler with those guys screening for him in pick and roll or the other way around. And I just see too much of the Julius Randle – who bricked and bricked and bricked and bricked the Knicks out of the playoffs against the Hawks. That's interesting because my Knicks starters offensive angst is actually more directed, I would say, towards R.J. Barrett than Julius Randle, where, you know, same same thing. You'd expect he's never played with this kind of shooting I probably ever in his life. When you look at the Knicks teams he played on, that Duke team when he was there was super cramped. And you'd think that that would translate into better offensive efficiency. And so far, it just hasn't. His numbers are pretty similar or down from last season in terms in that regard. It's one of those, you know, it when you see it things, you know, it when a grouping of players or even a full team just feels like, all right, we know how to play with each other. Everything's going to flow. Like decisions are made quickly. We have a consistent style and identity. This lineup does not have it. There are, there are three-minute periods where it looks great and four-minute periods where it's stuck in mud. I don't worry about Barrett. I know he's he's in a shooting slump. I just I think his three-point shooting last year was real. He's young. He's going to have ups and downs. When I watch him play and I, if I closed my eyes and ignored the result of the shot, I think he still looks fine to me and I think the shooting will be okay you know who I just love watching Obi Toppin oh Obi Toppin I do love watching the windmill dunks are ridiculous Emmanuel quickly I wish I were as confident about (laughs) literally anything I do in my daily routine as like if I were if I were as confident parallel parking in New York is Emmanuel quickly is just shooting any shot that presents itself I would be like squeezing into spots that are meant for little mini hybrid cars. I'd be like, and now I pass, I'm a bad parallel parker. I'm, I'm a below average parallel parker. My wife would say bad. I pass by spots where she's like, there's plenty of space there. You're such a baby. I don't want to be stared at failing to <laughs> parallel park by all the bison. Emmanuel quickly would be like, oh, that space is for a motorcycle. Watch this. That guy is launching step back threes. He gets the crowd so amped up at MSG. He's so confident. I love watching that kid play. See, th- I had this experience the other day, which is the, the annoying thing to me is when the road is empty and the person waits for you to pull back into the to reverse into the spot instead of just going Panic! around. Panic! It's like, look, I don't need that kind of pressure here, okay? Uh, I, although I feel like the backup camera has dramatically improved my, my parallel when parking someone, efficiency. When I'm at a restaurant outside, and someone is trying to parallel park near the restaurant and they're failing. I'm like, don't look, don't look at it. Don't look, don't, they're, they're already, they're already having a bad time. Don't stare. Don't, and then you stare and you're like, still, you're on the curb. It's, it's such a bad feeling. But George Costanza is the Emmanuel Quickly of parallel parking, right? His line when he says, there are things going, there are th- I, something like, I'm doing things in here. You have no idea they're even going on. <laughs> like, insisting that he's got some intangible part. You have no, like, Elaine can't even see some of the things that are, he's like Nikola Jokic passing. Like, you can't even see what's going on in his mind when he's parallel parking. Somehow, this is supposed to be about the Knicks. <laughs> I'm not worried about the Knicks. I think the Knicks will be fine. I'm just watching, I mean, they're a top 10 offense. That's great. I'm watching the defense and. If they can, if they can um, rebound a little better, if the three-point shooting normalizes. By the way, for the second year in a row, their first lowest opponent shooting percentage at the rim, which was one of the things we wondered, could could they duplicate that? Nerlens Noel has barely played this year. They're just a really good rim defense team. Yeah, I mean that 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 may be some Tibbs alchemy because that's not one that tends to fluctuate as much as opponent shooting on jump shots. Todd Gibson. What is he, 6'8", 6'9"? 
You watch you watch the Knicks play. He's like Dikembe Mutombo out there. He's not even like blocking lots of shots, but his his positioning is so good. He's so smart. He raises his arms high all the time. He's like a really legit rim protector. Is Taj Gibson going to be a Luke Walton All Star? And if not, do we need a different All Star team for Taj Gibson to be on? Like preferably with uh, late Oklahoma City era Nick Collison. I want Taj Gibson and Tibbs to like retire and live in the same retirement community and just like grumpily walk around the the community like with Tibbs grunting and Todd Gibson trying to cheer him up with his his uh his Todd just seems to be just like an all-time NBA personality. KP, any uh closing thoughts on the Knicks? No, I mean I think I go back to where I started. Like I I think this is the Knicks who are who we thought we they were. It's just a question about the rest of the East and whether it's better than we thought it was. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Two more teams in the angst grab bag. The 6-9 and nine Pacers and the 8-5 and five Jazz. Pick one, KP. Uh, let's go Utah. I mean, this is another one where I'm low angsty. No, I need you to be angsty because there's big time championship pressure on the Jazz this year. They're eight and five. They've lost four out of five. The sky is falling. Kevin, they are second in offense despite being 27th in three point shooting, which is a problem when you take just about the most three pointers in the league. They can't make a damn thing from three. They're still second in offense. That should trouble the rest of the league that the Jazz are shooting horribly and they're number two in offense. They're 11th in defense. Which is interesting. It's interesting. And that is behind their little slump here. They're giving up 115 points per 100 possessions in their last five games, which would rank dead last um, in the NBA. And uh, we can talk about whether we think that's real or not. I, I tend to think it's it's not that real because they're getting absolutely smoked from three-point range, uh, both for the season and particularly during this streak. But their defense was their undoing against the Clippers, much more so than their offense. The Clippers spread them out, and they had no answer for one-on-one drives against really anybody. Um, but you're unconcerned. You're going to be boring and unconcerned and take the big-picture outlook, aren't you? All right, well, maybe you talked to me into a little angst here. I mean, I think what was interesting about Utah when they had started 7-2 and two or whatever it was, was they, they were shooting as poorly as you mentioned, and that was just fine because opponents couldn't make a three to save their lives during that stretch. Uh, they, they shot 26.5% on threes over the first eight games. Then over the last five, they're at 43. So one of those, uh, it didn't actually regress to the mean. It, it did sort of a, uh, a game gambler's fallacy where it overcorrected to get them back to where they should have been all along to expect. Like I think their opponent three-point shooting is, a, is about now where it's going to settle in. Their own shooting did not experience that same boost, and we've got to presume eventually it will, and they will be the, you know, they will come back to the top of the Western Conference standings or somewhere very close to it. But to to your point, one thing that did make me feel angsty was watching last Thursday's game against Indiana, where they just seemed curiously sluggish, lethargic pick your adjective there and i think it was indiana that was on a back-to-back plane at altitude whereas the the jazz if i recall correctly were rested in that game and yet Melkin brogdon who i think maybe hadn't played in the previous game because he had been injured kept blowing by mike conley and utah's other perimeter defenders and that definitely gave me a lot of flashbacks to last year's playoff series 
Yeah, the perimeter defense is still – I mean, look, when you have Clarkson out there and he can't make a shot, he'll make shots eventually. Joe Ingles is smart. We know how smart Joe is um, and a great passer. There are nights now – I think he's 34 – where he looks like a 34-year-old player with slow feet on defense where he can't make up for it all with his brain and his feel and his arms. And, and maybe in the playoffs when there's no back-to-backs and stuff, that won't, that won't be the case. Um, I'm not worried about their defense because their, their defensive architecture is, is the same. They don't give up shots at the rim and they don't give up threes. That's a Rudy Gobert team. You plug and play them out there. Interestingly, they've been way better with Rudy on the bench, which is a tribute to, I think, their, their own backup units. And they never go full bench mob. The Jazz go with these mixed units that are always really good. Whiteside's been good for them. Pascal's been good for them. Um, and, and I think that's a good sign. Interestingly, they're down to 15th in defensive rebounding which is very unlike the Jazz. This is a perennial top five defensive rebounding team. And yet Rudy Gobert has rebounded 40% of opponent misses, which would have to be a freaking record if expanded over a full season. So I, I think you're seeing some sort of softness on the glass from the rest of the team, but I don't know. There's just something. There's something. I saw that Pacers game too. I saw the Heat game. There's just something... Maybe it's just inconsistency and wake me up when the playoffs approach, but there's just something I, I can't put my finger on it, KP. There's something I don't love. No, if you want to be optimistic about the Jazz, the we still haven't seen their biggest offseason addition in Rudy Gay, who I think is someone who will really help that defensive rebounding at issue. Eric Pascal is not a guy who defensive rebounds and they're playing him, you know, as a four next to Whiteside. That's the spot that presumably Gay is going to fill when he comes back into the rotation. So, you know, maybe that helps even though that those lineups are playing well overall. I think the Rudy Gay salvation thing is being I just see a lot of stuff in the media with the Utah media. It's like, oh, wait till Rudy Rudy Gay comes back. Like this will this will solve everything. I mean, okay. Um It'll solve some things. I, I think Utah's fine. I, they're a regular season wins machine. I, I just I assume this is a little bit of malaise. And Donovan Mitchell having a great season. I mean, what what have you seen from him? It's, statistically, he's having a great season. I test great season. Like that guy, he just keeps getting better and better. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I don't think I don't. I guess the. I, you know, Utah, watching them in the regular season, as you said, there's just not much for them to prove. But maybe then we're overlooking the potential for Mitchell to continue to develop by not paying that much attention to what they're doing in the regular season. I think his passing has taken another step. I might write about that in my column this week. All right, enough jazz. Let's wrap with the Pacers. Six and nine, 13th in offense, 17th in defense. Average, 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 average. Uh, just someone's out every game. It was Karis LeVert for a while. It's TJ Warren all the time. It was Malcolm Brogdon here or there. The big guys tend to play uh, Turner and Sabonis. To that point, I assume that their preferred starting lineup without TJ Warren is Brogdon, LeVert, Chris Duarte, Miles Turner, Domas Sabonis. That lineup has played 27 minutes the entire season to, to underscore just how, how badly these guys have been banged up. Um, this is Rick Carlisle's first year with the team. Lots has changed since they were under Nate Bjorkren last year, which was a disaster. Um, I just can't, I can't get excited about these guys. I, I, I just can't. I, and, and I watch them, and I, and I don't quite know what they are or what they're trying to be. Um, wait, wait, can you sell me on the Pacers, Kevin? All right, so the reasons for optimism, number one, they've lost the most games by five points or fewer of any team in the league. They're 2-5 they're and five in those games, which is how you end up 6-9 and nine with a – break-even point differential. And then number two, one of the things that Rick Carlisle has changed is they're giving up the best opponent shots in the league, according to second spectrum tracking. You know, they've got tons of mid-range jumpers, no threes and tons of mid-range jumpers. That, that is a big change. They've got Miles Turner, who is one of the league's best rim protectors. And, you know, that, that gives them a solid base defensively to, to force those type of shots, much like Utah with Gobert. Uh, opponents have shot the fifth highest three-point percentage against them, which is one reason they haven't taken as much advantage of that shot profile as they could have thus far. So I think if you combine those with the potential for TJ Warren to come back and, and upgrade them offensively, those are the reasons for optimism. I think the reasons for concern is, again, just the depth of the East. Like even that break-even point differential, that's 10th in the conference. And some of the teams behind them are Milwaukee, as we mentioned, who is going to inevitably get healthy 
Atlanta, who is going to play better, and Charlotte, who I think has shown signs of, you know, is ahead of Indiana in the standings at this point and has shown signs of the ability to play better than that. So, you know, there's just not, a, until you get to Orlando and Detroit, there's not a lot of non-competitive teams in the Eastern Conference because of the way that Cleveland has exceeded expectations. And that's going to make it harder for, you know, certainly to push into the top six, but maybe even to push into that play-in in the top 10. Warren really ties this team together um, in terms of being someone who is turned into turned himself into a great spot-up shooter. Being Phoenix, at the beginning of his career, he was not a great spot-up shooter. Uh, so he doesn't need the ball, and he wants the ball. And remember, the bubble T.J. Warren was like, oh, my God, it's Michael Jordan. Um, but between Brogdon, who's shooting 28% on threes, Levert, who's shooting 21% on threes, Sabonis, those are three guys who need and want the ball. So to have a guy who's a threat as a spot-up shooter, cutter, all that, and then he becomes the backup four when one of the centers sits. And right now that that is being occupied by um, Torrey Craig mostly. Sometimes you see some O'Shea Brissett. Uh, Keelan Martin has given them some good minutes, but that's a shaky spot for him. He really ties their team together. His health uh, and ability to be the T.J. Warren we remember is going to be is going to be huge for them. Um, and just offensively, these guys have to, their main guys just have to shoot better. Um, but you know, this team, this they're good players all over this team. I think they're going to hang around and hang around and hang around. I just don't. It's a lot of guys who want the ball, and the depth worries me a little. I just don't quite know. It's going to take, I think, them some time to figure out exactly what they want to be offensively. I mean, they're thirteenth. It's not like they're playing bad. It just, I just, it's like Sabonis is chucking a lot of threes now. They're trying to figure a lot of stuff out, and it just feels like, again, you know it when you see it. You know it when a team has itself figured out. The Pacers don't feel like that to me. I'm glad that with Warren, at least we have you know some sort of a timeline talk of him in next month or or potentially January because, uh, you know, I'm still. Until I see him on the court, I probably am not ready to count him in at this point because of the fact that we've seen it take so long, unfortunately, for for him to get back. But it, it's better than just you know undetermined some point in the future ETA, I guess. Miles Turner. I mean, I knew he was having a good season. He's had a weird season where there, I think he took four shots last night against the Knicks, where he's just sort of an afterthought. Fourteen a game, fourteen points per game. 55% shooting, 43% on threes, 68% on twos. He's number one in blocks again. And opponents are shooting 47.9% at the basket with Turner as the closest defender, which is just laughably amazing. Quite a season. And it just de- and, and yet, depending on the night you see the Pacers, it doesn't feel like he's having an impact, at least offensively, that measures up to 14 points a game. Defensively, you feel him all the time. Part of it is that he's still just not comfortable with the ball in open space. He's he's he shows flashes here of, of improving as a like a one dribble decision maker, quick hitting passer, but they're they're just flashes. He just doesn't look comfortable in that role. I don't I just don't know what to make. We've been waiting on the Turner Sabonis breakup for four years. Is is it ever gonna happen? Are they just fine? And by the way, KP, for the second straight year, they're doing better with just Turner. Than with just Sabonis, the just Sabonis minutes are bad. They were bad last year, um, and and that's sort of a continuation of a trend. I just don't know when they're together. They're playing great. I, I don't I don't know. I just I don't I don't know. I, maybe I'm just trying to break them up, and I shouldn't be. Yeah, I don't think that there's an urgency to break them up at this point. I mean, you know, maybe at some point the Pacers need to do something else just for the sake of shaking things up for all the reasons you've outlined, but. I don't know if that that's the place my mind would first go to is what to do. It, you mentioned his ability to handle the ball. I, I feel like the very first preseason game I watched may have involved the Pacers and Turner made some move like that against a defender who was closing out and it was very exciting to see that. And then, yeah, it just hasn't carried over whatsoever that I can tell so far during the regular season. But he actually figured pretty prominently. We did a similar exercise to the Neil Olshay one. I went through it with the Pelicans in David Griffin's tenure. And to me, the number one thing is that they never have found that stretch five who can both protect the rim and and shoot the three to play next to Zion, uh, assuming Zion is on the court. 
and Turner would have been the guy last off season. I would have called every day about, can we find a way to get into this Boston, Indiana sign and trade for Gordon Hayward? And we end up with miles Turner because that would have been an awesome outcome for, for them, in my opinion. Well, those two teams have talked a lot about Miles Turner over the years. I don't know how far any of those talks have gotten, but that's also been reported. I mean, there's definitely been phone calls about that about that subject. It's too depressing to talk about the Pelicans, honestly. But that's and it's another interesting case related to the Portland one of of you watch their team now, and it's like you know Ingram has now come back for two games or one and one in those two games, but you're like, my God, it's just a just just a devoid of talent here. And then you think back, you're like, well, you know, when they made the AD trade, I think the the reaction to that was largely very positive for the Pelicans. They got a lot of stuff, including Brandon Ingram and tons of picks, some of which they just forked over in these weird offseason transactions trying to get Kyle Lowry. That didn't work. Um, and the Drew Holiday trade, they got three firsts. Everyone's like, wow, that's pretty good. And some other stuff, too. It's a pretty good return for Drew Holiday. Yeah, but they're all just picks and young players, right? There's just sort of a a, a a surfeit of actual good mid-career NBA players, and when you just lose the best guy on the team for the whole season, that that really shows up. But yeah, there's it's the same thing where okay, so what did they do wrong? What's the opportunity cost? You have to sort of spin your wheels and start to think about it, and it is something like the player who's not there, the trade that didn't happen the path not taken it's like it's it's something that you have to sort of craft in your mind it's not anything that's super obvious sitting right in front of you that jackson hayes and the alexander walker for deandre hunter trade how's that looking in your eyes kp i mean that's what's tough to understand because you know hunter has had such an up and down nba career thus far i mean he was one of the least effective players in the league as a rookie despite being relatively older for a rookie than was outstanding last season but now these injury problems he was ineffective at the start of this year uh, at least offensively and these injury problems threatened to you know make his his career not what we hoped it could be so i think that's part of the reason that there's value in historically trading down and getting getting two players so you know not as much of that risk is tied up in one player i i think hayes was the again the wrong kind of center to put against zion alongside zion williamson so you know if they had gone a different direction with that pick i would feel maybe differently about it alexander walker is fascinating because i really liked him coming out of college but i liked him is you know kind of a do everything type of role player maybe like a contavious caldwell pope with a little more ability to handle the ball and instead he's kind of developed into a microwave score in the nba and, and that's worked well lately for the pelicans after his slow start but it's not the player i expected him to be these are all re- weird teams i'm glad we dug into these teams because they are these are just weird 500-ish teams where you could – they're like Rorschach tests. You could look at them and conclude almost anything you want. Um, I don't know who even – if you ask me, like, who am I most worried about of this group, I don't even know what my what my pick would be, really. Maybe the the Kings? I, I'm not – but I'm not – I don't know. Who am I least worried about? Utah, obviously. It's just a weird – it's a weird bunch of teams, Kevin. Indeed it is. I, I guess I'm probably most worried about Portland relatively just because I think they've got – the most riding on this season with, you know, I, I mean, and then they're just in the most unusual spot because they could have a new head of their basketball organization any day now. And, you know, who knows what that means for someone who was hired, Chauncey Billups, who was hired by a different, you know, executive and what that means for Damian Lillard's future. Like there's just, there's a lot of question marks in Portland right now. That's true. When you zoom out, obviously they're the one that you should worry most about. Uh, I, I am interested to see how they play the next five or six games because they have games where last night like it, it, it really vibes for them. All right, Mr. Pelton, uh, we can look for your mailbag again over the weekend. Anything else we should be on high alert for from you? Uh, actually, I'm talking about the Blazers again tomorrow as part of uh, a kind of a similar group of teams that uh, a few writers are splitting up and, and going uh, – uh, I think it's more the panic meter on that one than the angst meter. Okay, so we we got ahead of it. All right, we we I have my I have my finger on the pulse unknowingly of ESPN.com. <laughs> Kevin Pelton, look out for that. Look out for the mailbag over the weekend. Your work is second to none. Uh, I hope to run into you soon, my friend. It's good to virtually see you. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.